as you relax into the awareness of hearing, you may become aware of the subtleties or the nuances of sound. No straining, no efforting, simply being open, receptive, All the sounds are coming and going by themselves. Relaxing the eyes. Relaxing the jaw, the shoulders, and the heart. Relaxing the ears. Just listening, very simply. And in that space of openness, begin to feel each breath. That's the natural breathing going in and out. Keeping the same relaxed openness, the breath happens by itself. Feeling the sensations of the air at the nostrils, the movement of the chest, the rise and fall of the abdomen. Open to sounds, feeling each breath. Notice when the mind wanders, when it gets lost in a thought or an image. Simply come back to the body, to the breath, to hearing.
And in the last few minutes, see how carefully you can feel each breath, each half breath. The subtleties of the sensations of the breath. Just one breath at a time. Some quite remarkable things have been happening as Buddhism and the Buddhist teachings have landed and begun to flourish here in this country. Now the traditions, different Buddhist traditions, were long isolated in Asia. They really didn't have contact with one another uh, for many centuries. But over the last 30 years here, many of these Buddhist traditions from India and Burma and Thailand, Tibet and Japan and Korea, from all of the Buddhist world, these traditions have funneled into the West and are meeting and interacting with one another in ways that have not happened maybe since the great Buddhist university at Nalanda in the seventh century. So it's, it's a very interesting phenomenon, and it's a unique one in the whole development of the Buddhist teachings. Now at first, these meetings of traditions, sometimes they weren't always easy. You know, sometimes there was a lot of confusion. There's now a quite famous story of two great masters, a Korean Zen master, Sung San, and one of the great Tibetan meditation masters, Kalo Rinpoche. And this was in Kalo's last incarnation. He has since been reborn. But they met in, 19, in the early 1970s in Cambridge, Mass. You know, in certain Zen forms, there's this kind of Zen combat where you're really challenging the person you're speaking to and kind of testing their Dharma knowledge. So Sung San, in speaking with Kala Rinpoche, held up an orange and kind of in good Zen fashion demanded, demanded what is this? You know, expecting some revelation of ultimate truth. And Rinpoche just kind of looked at him a little quizzically, didn't quite understand. And Sung San again held up the orange and said, what is this? And again Rinpoche shook his head. And a third time this happened. And finally, Kala Rinpoche turned to his translator and said, don't they have oranges in Korea? (laughs) (laughs) 
so this cross-cultural stuff is not always easy. You know, we have to get over a few humps of translation. But over time, out of the many interactions that have taken place between the Theravada schools of Buddhism and Mahayana and Vajrayana, you know, from all of these different cultures, something new is emerging. And it's what I call the one dharma of Western Buddhism. Because in our society, we value investigation. You know, we value a taking from different traditions what is of value. And many of us are practicing and studying with different teachers and integrating and synthesizing in a way that hasn't happened really before. Now, and just as in Asia, when Buddhism developed in these different cultures, each form developed its own unique flavor and quality and characteristic. And so Zen is quite different than Tibetan Buddhism, is different than Burmese Buddhism. In the same way, this new emerging Western Buddhism has its own distinctive flavor. And in my experience over these last years, the flavor that is suffusing this new emerging Buddhism of the West is one of the great American qualities. And that is the quality of pragmatism. What's emerging in the West is not particularly some elaborate philosophical system. And it's not an attachment to a particular sectarian viewpoint. And that's the great gift, I think, that we can bring to the evolution of the Buddhist teachings. Here in the West, there is an allegiance to a very simple question. And it's the essence of pragmatism. And that is, what works? What works to free the mind from suffering? What works to engender greater compassion within us? What works to awaken from the dreamlike state of our ignorance? I think this Western pragmatic approach, particularly now in these times, is of vital importance. I think it goes even beyond a significant historical evolution of the Buddhist teachings and their coming to the West. I think particularly now, given what's happening in the world, bringing this quality of pragmatism to the teachings, to our practice, to our lives, is essential, given the tremendous uncertainties and the enormous conflicts that are in the world today. Now, whether we're looking at the degradation of the environment, or we're looking at the war on terror, or the seemingly intractable violence in the Middle East, or the problems, and often the very intense problems, in our own personal lives, we need methods. We need to learn methods and practices for exploring and understanding the forces that are work within our own minds.
Now, what are the forces that drive injustice and violence? We see them being played out in the world so vividly. What are the forces in the mind that drive those actions? What are the forces in the mind that actually hold the promise of peace, the possibilities of peace? Do we understand in a deeply transformative way the nature of fear, the nature of hatred, the nature of envy, the nature of greed? This is what's being played out. Do we know pragmatically, not theoretically, do we know how to cultivate love and compassion in our lives? The great discovery of the meditative journey, and I know many of you are deeply immersed in the path, but the great discovery of this journey, of this inner journey, is seeing that all the forces, both for harm and for good, that are playing out in the world today, all of those forces, both for harm and for good, are right here in our own minds. And so if we want to understand, we want to understand the world and what's happening, we need to understand ourselves. And without that understanding, we won't be able to actually discern the causes of so much suffering that we see manifesting. So the question is, can we do this? Is there a way to come to an understanding of the nature of our own minds, of the nature of these energies that drive us both in our personal lives and in the larger field of world activity. The one dharma of Western Buddhism really draws from different tradition, from different traditions, and weaves together three, three qualities. The one dharma of the West draws together methods of mindfulness from all the traditions, the motivation of compassion, and the wisdom of non-clinging, the liberating wisdom of non-clinging. Mindfulness, compassion, and wisdom. These forces in the mind are not Thai, they're not Burmese, they're not Tibetan, they're not Japanese, they're not American. These forces of mindfulness, compassion, and wisdom are qualities in ourselves, they're qualities in our own minds. And many different practices in many traditions enhance their growth. This is what we're cultivating. Mindfulness in one form or another is at the heart of every Buddhist teaching. Because mindfulness is the key to the present moment. It connects us to what's happening. And it has the central place of importance in every Buddhist, every Buddhist path. Without mindfulness, we simply stay lost in the wanderings of our minds. 
I just want to read a, a very simple teaching from one of the great Tibetan Dzogchen masters right, of the last century, Tilko Ergin. He said, there is one thing we always need, and that is the watchman named mindfulness, the guard who is always on the lookout for when we get carried away by mindlessness. So what is mindfulness? It's very simple. Mindfulness is that quality of awareness that knows what's happening in the moment. It's attentive to what's happening in the moment. Now, there's an old Zen story of a student going in to see the Zen master, and it was raining. And he goes in, and he leaves kind of his shoes and umbrella outside the door. He goes in, he does his bows, and he's about to kind of report on his meditation experience, and the Zen master asks him, on what side of your shoes did you leave your umbrella? Of course, the student had no idea. And so he was dismissed. <laughs> That's the quality you know, that we practice to cultivate, and it's not easy, because our minds are so used to being lost, lost in thought. Mindfulness works like a mirror. Now, a mirror doesn't choose what to reflect. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't reflect only what's beautiful and not what's ugly. A mirror has the nature to reflect whatever comes in front of it. Mindfulness has the nature to know, to be aware of whatever's arising. It serves us in the humblest ways. Mindfulness is an incredibly humble quality. It connects us with brushing our teeth and having a cup of tea. And in case you think this is insignificant, and those of you who have been on meditation retreats will probably be familiar with this, have you ever noticed when you bring mindfulness to brushing your teeth how much pressure you're using to hold on to the toothbrush? <laughs> I mean, it's like we're holding on to a jackhammer. Because we're not paying attention. We're, just, we're doing this totally automatic act. And we live our lives like that. We're exerting so much force and so much energy, so much more than we need. And as soon as we are just mindful, everything becomes like a Japanese tea ceremony. You know, with just the appropriate amount of effort and energy and grace, something as simple as brushing our teeth or having a cup of tea. Mindfulness also connects us in a very real way to the people around us. So we're not simply rushing by the people in our lives in, in the busyness of what we're doing. And the Dalai Lama is an exemplar of so much, you know, but he very much exemplifies this quality. There was one beautiful example of this. It was after a conference that was held, I believe it was in Phoenix, someplace in Arizona. I was in one of the large hotels, and the conference was over, and everybody was leaving. The Dalai Lama was leaving. But before he left, he asked that all the employees of the hotel you know, come down to the lobby and be lined up so he could greet every single employee you know, and give that moment of attention. Would we ever think to do that? 
they might be less interested in being <laughs> greeted by us. <laughs> I can just see tomorrow morning. <laughs> But you can imagine the moment. You know, it's just that gift of attention. It's the gift of a complete attention. So mindfulness not only just connects us to our ordinary daily activities so that we begin to engage in them appropriately and with some grace, it connects us to the people around us so that we're actually there in the moment rather than rushing through the moment. And mindfulness also serves the very highest goal of liberation. You know, the word in English is so prosaic, mindfulness. It's not, it's not a juicy word. And yet the quality of the mind of being mindful is tremendously powerful. I want to read just two lines from the discourse the Buddha gave when he was explaining the practice of mindfulness. Okay, and this, this is the opening lines of this discourse, the sutta. He said, this practice of mindfulness, of being attentive in the moment, is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the way, for the realization of nirvana, enlightenment. Not bad. <laughs> From this very humble quality. It's really all we need to do, is to learn how to pay attention, not to be distracted. This practice of mindfulness is very simple, but it's not easy. And those of you who have done any meditation practice know this very well. One of the first insights we have in insight meditation, and people have this after their very first sitting, it's the insight into how often our minds wander, how often we get lost in our thoughts and our daydreams. Now we're watching a breath, one breath, two breaths, on a good day, three breaths. <laughs> And then, you know, our plans and our memories and our anticipation and our worries, our expectations, our judgments, we get lost, we get carried away. We get lost in the movie. It's like, it's, it's like being lost in the movie, in the story of a movie, and forgetting that all that's really happening is light being projected on the screen. You know, when we go to the movies, there's no one there getting killed or, you know, doing a car chase or falling in love or whatever. We're lost in the story of it, and that's why we pay to go to the movies. We like being lost in the story. But really, none of that is actually happening. Sitting in meditation saved you seven bucks. <laughs> Ten. <laughs> In Barry, Massachusetts, at seven. <laughs> it is just we get lost in the movies of our minds, and we forget that it's just a mental projection. 
And what's so amazing is that very often we get lost in things that are not even pleasant. We just chew on all our past hurts and annoyances and irritations. Why? And very often we're lost in things that aren't even true. You know, I mean, we can, we can spend a lot of time in anticipation of something that hasn't happened and get all upset about it. Mark Twain captured the moment, this experience, when he said, some of the worst things in my life never happened. <laughs> we see this very clearly. This, this is revealed very clearly in meditation practice. But slowly, you know, if, if we apply ourselves to the discipline, it is a discipline, just like anything else, like music or sports, we practice it. And as we practice it, the mind does develop some ability to concentrate a little bit more. We begin to create some space within ourselves, an inner space of peace, of calm, even, even for short periods. And this can be done any place. We can create an inner space of silence in the middle of New York City when we learn how to focus our attention, when we learn how to sustain the mindfulness. And as we create some space of inner stillness, it then allows for a tremendously interesting investigation. And that is, it allows for the investigation of the nature of thought and emotion. And what's very surprising is that even though we've all had uncountable number of thoughts in our lives, and we've all had endless, endless, endless thoughts. How rare it is for us to really look into the mind and ask ourselves the question, what is the nature of a thought? What is a thought? Not what's the story, not being lost in the drama, but really looking at thought as a phenomenon. What is this phenomena that drives our lives? And this is what's so amazing to see, that when thoughts are unnoticed, when we're lost in them, when we don't know that we're thinking, they have tremendous power. They, they are driving our lives. You can be sitting comfortably at home, relaxed, at ease. The thought comes, oh, I think I'd like a pizza. The thought lifts us up, takes us downstairs, or to the phone, however you get pizza. And we're, we're playing out a whole train of actions simply driven by a thought. And it's not, there's nothing wrong with doing that. It just shows, and that's obviously a very trivial example, but it shows the power of thought in our lives. Our actions are born from our thoughts. And mostly, we're not aware of that. And so we're just playing out patterns of conditioning. 
When we look at the nature of thought, we discover, and this is very much worth doing because it's such a powerful force in our lives. When we look at the nature of thought, we find that it is little more than nothing. There's hardly anything there. It's, it's like a little wisp of an energy blip. That's all a thought is. But mostly we're not aware of it. And so we get seduced into believing it and identifying with it and acting it out, and this is our lives. So mindfulness here has tremendous power, kind of awakens us from the dream. You know the feeling when you go to the movies and you're lost in the story and you know, very involved uh, in the movie, and you know that moment when you step outside of the theater and it's almost like there's a reality shift? You know, and all of a sudden, just in that moment, the mind has been narrowly focused and being drawn into the story, and then you step out of the theater and you realize, oh, that was just a movie, right? And, and there's that moment where all of a sudden the world gets bigger again. This is what happens every time we awaken from being lost in a thought. There's a moment of our world getting bigger. We begin to experience the tremendous spaciousness of awareness rather than the prison of forgetfulness, of not being aware. So we begin to investigate thought. We also begin to investigate emotion. You know, the, the powerful array of emotions that can sweep over our minds and our bodies, and we can become so enmeshed in the roller coaster of our emotional life. Now, it's our investigation of emotion which is the doorway, it's the gateway to understanding the second aspect of one dharma. The first is mindfulness, which I've talked about a bit now. The second is compassion, the motivation of compassion. We need to understand emotion and how it works within us in order to open the wellspring of compassion within us. And this happens both on a personal level, in our personal lives, but it relates to what's happening in the world today. And this is what I want to explore together this evening. This integration of understanding what's happening in our own minds and what's happening in the world, because they're connected. There's an intimate connection. And it has enormous implications. Quite a few months ago, I was at a retreat, helping to lead a retreat for a group of lawyers, law professors, law students. It's part of the program of the Contemplative Mind and Society, trying to bring the practice into mainstream situations. So this, was, this is the contemplative law program. 
Now this retreat happened just six weeks after 9-11. So you can imagine the intensity of what was happening there. As part of the retreat, we were teaching the meditation on loving-kindness. You know, in Pali, in the Pali language, as you know probably, the word is metta, M-E-T-T-A, the Pali word for loving-kindness. And as we do this practice of metta, or loving-kindness, we start, you know, wishing well with loving phrases, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be free of suffering. So we start with ourselves, and then we direct it to a benefactor, we direct it to a friend, we direct it to a neutral person, somebody we don't really know, and then to a difficult person, the enemy, and then to all beings. Okay, so this was the end of this retreat. We were doing the loving-kindness meditation, and the person leading it suggested the possibility of really extending the loving wishes, the loving-kindness, the metta, even to the people who hijacked the planes that flew into the World Trade Center. Some weeks after that, in some email uh, communications, one of the law professors from Columbia, living in New York, he said, I could never send loving wishes to the Al-Qaeda. And moreover, I don't want to. And I was tremendously struck by the openness and the straightforwardness and the honesty of that communication. You know, especially living in New York and being so intimately aware you know, of the suffering and devastation. But for me, that statement, I could never send loving-kindness to these people, and I don't want to, it raised a lot of very interesting questions. When I read that, I was struck by the honesty of it, and it just it brought up in my mind some powerful questions. What is our response to violence and injustice? What is an appropriate response? How do we understand the practice of love and compassion? What's our, our, what is our idea of it, and is it accurate? And most fundamentally, it raised the question, what are our bedrock, bottom-line aspirations for ourselves in the world? And these are the questions we need to ask. Now, as we do the meditation, the loving-kindness meditation, and we repeat the phrases, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be free of suffering, when we get to the difficult people in that progression, even on just a personal level, you know, the people who have been difficult in our lives, who have done us some harm, very often we don't want to include them in these loving wishes. Now, when somebody has done us harm, either individually or collectively, when we, get to, when we get to them, the feeling often arises, I don't want, I don't want to. 
they've caused harm to me. In fact, sometimes, not only might we not want to wish them happiness, <laughs> we might want to wish them a little suffering. And certainly after 9-11, this was, I think, a predominant mood in the country. You know, and today also, with all these recent terrorist warnings that you know, have been coming up in these last weeks, a lot of these same feelings may be arising. But right here, I mean, I think we're at a very important juncture. It's the critical juncture of contemplative practice, meditative practice, and our life in the world, our life of action in the world. How do we respond to these situations? If we want to enhance the possibilities of greater peace and compassion in the world, I think it's essential that we look underneath our emotional reactions, even ones that are quite instinctive. We need to explore it deeper, realizing that wise and appropriate responses will only come if we understand the range of motivations, the range of emotions within ourselves. If we don't look underneath, if we just are acting out the impulses, our emotional impulses, it's very unlikely that they will be wise. But looking at the range of our motivations is not easy because they're often very jumbled. So I'll tell you a story. This is just a little aside about the difficulty of connecting and understanding our emotions and motivations. I was on retreat, and I was reading a Buddhist text, and I came across a story that I thought my friend Sharon Salzberg would like for her new book on faith. Now, just as background to this, you have to realize that among Dharma teachers, a good story is worth a lot. <laughs> it's like a new story. <laughs> that's, that's gold. So that was my first thought. I, I read this story and I thought, oh, this will be great for Sharon's book. And then the very next thought in my mind was, no, I'll keep it for myself. <laughs> and then the next thought was, no, I'll, I'll give her the story. And now a more will come back to me. You know? so I was relying on the law of karma. And then I thought, no, that's just being selfish. So this, this is the train of thoughts that are going on in my mind. And because I was on retreat, I was actually able to track all of this. And I was just watching my mind do this. And then I thought, oh, that's just being selfish. I'll just give her the story, but I'll tell her what I'm going through. <laughs> you know, and hoping to kind of inculcate a little debt of gratitude. <laughs> And finally, and uh, not quite disgust and despair, but <laughs> approaching that, I just asked myself, well, where in the mix of all of this is that moment of just pure generosity, you know, purity of motive? Because I saw so many different motives in myself. And when I looked, I saw that it was there. There actually was a moment of purity of motivation, and it was in the very first moment, the very first thought 
oh, I'll give her the story. And I saw that we can always come back to that. Even if we have many mixed motives and feelings, if we're aware, if we're mindful, we can always come back to that place of purity. So at the end of my retreat, I showed her the story, and she didn't even want it. (laughs) So coming back now, I think in situations of suffering, whether it's our personal, individual suffering or conflicts in our lives or collective suffering, there's one fundamental question that we need to ask. In this situ- because it's this question which is the gateway, it's the key, it holds the key to compassionate response. In this situation of suffering, whether it's our own personal stuff or it's some huge collective suffering, the fundamental question to ask is in this situation, what is it that I most wish? What is my deepest aspiration in this situation? It's been interesting for me in these last weeks of reading you know, about all the violence in the Middle East, and it just seems so endless. You know, how each side is just feeding the other. And I found that the phrases I was using for the loving kindness were changing. And it was interesting to me to watch how I was adapting the practice to fit the situation. Because in thinking of both the Israelis and the Palestinians, I found that it was very easy to include both sides in the very heartfelt wish, may you be free of enmity, may you be free of hatred. If our aspiration is peace in the world, is there anyone we would put outside this wish? Either the Al-Qaeda bombers or the suicide bombers or the soldiers lost in violence, or any perpetrators of suffering, is there anyone we would put outside of the wish, may you be free of enmity, may you be free of hatred? I don't think so, if our wish is peace in the world. Because those are the mind states that drive harmful actions. And if our own response is enmity or hatred, whether we acknowledge it or not, we are simply part of the problem. So this takes a lot of awareness. You know, not to get lost in our immediate, even instinctual emotional reaction, but to ask that fundamental question, what is it I most wish for in this situation of suffering? This is not a new message. We have heard this from many great teachers for centuries. But some challenging questions remain. 
what do we do with these difficult feelings, these difficult emotions when they arise? Because for almost all of us, in different situations, they will arise. How do we come back to or find that place of compassion when we're lost in the waves of anger or ill will or hatred or en enmity? How can we come back to it or fear? Most importantly, we need to acknowledge that they're there. We need to acknowledge these feelings in ourselves. And it's mindfulness which allows us to watch this whole parade of feelings. It's fear, ill will, anger. Mindfulness allows us to open to it. I'll share one experience I had. And this was a transforming moment for me in working with fear. And I imagine, given the world situation now, fear is arising at different times for a lot of people. What do we do with it? How do we hold it? I was on retreat, and primal fear was coming up. I mean, it was just this deep, deep waves of fear. And it wasn't even about anything in particular. It was just, I just had tapped in to this energy in myself. And I'm sitting and walking and trying to note fear, 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 trying to open to it. But I felt totally locked. <coughs> then on the third day, I mean, this, this, this emotion was lasting a long time. On the third day, I was doing some walking meditation. And something shifted. And I remember my mind saying, and this was not just intellectual, it had actually dropped to a different place. If this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. That was an amazing moment. Because that was the first moment that I really accepted it. Before then, I knew it was there. Fear, 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 go away. Right, that, was, that was the implication. It was only when I got to that space, if this is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. So it's okay became the magic mantra. And I offer it to you as part of the cost of admission. <laughs> as these difficult emotions come up, use the mantra. It's okay. It's okay that we feel it, even though it's difficult. There are some unique challenges to being with difficult emotions. It's not easy, especially when they're, when they're really powerful, whether it's fear or jealousy or hatred. How do we hold it? How can we become mindful of it? There are some particular challenges. Very often, we live in denial. You know, we're just, we don't like to open to that side of ourselves. I'll share with you one story. This, this was probably one of the most devastating meditative experiences I had. So in the spirit of last night, and being with Mark, the therapist, I'll 
<laughs> Share with you a moment. You know, I had mentioned uh, being with our teacher, Saida Upandita, this Burmese, this Burmese master, very fierce, very demanding. This was the first, the first time I had been on retreat with him. We're seeing him every day, going in for interviews, sleeping only like four hours a night, meditating 14, 15 hours a day. It was very intense. It was a very pressured retreat. About halfway through the retreat, I go in and I'm giving my meditation report. And it's kind of very formal. You go in, you bow. And I give my meditation, you know, what was happening in my experience. And he looks at me and he says, that's not true. I died. <laughs> it was one of the more horrible moments of my life because I realized he was right. You know, that I had had a lot of knowledge about all the stages of insight and how the meditation should progress. And in some half-conscious way, I was just kind of you know, nudging my practice forward a little bit. But the skill of him as a teacher was he, he, he knew. He knew exactly where my practice was and where it, what could be happening and what couldn't be happening. And that's, that's his greatness as a teacher. So I gave this report and said, that's not true. And I just, I felt awful. I mean, I was, I was really devastated because I realized that here in this situation, where in a million years, I never would have thought that I could have basically lied. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what it came down to. <laughs> and we can call it shading the truth, but <laughs> basically it was a little lie. I mean, if you had asked me before that, would you ever do that with, you know, the teacher you most respect? Impossible. I would never do that. And so having that pointed out was, I was devastated. You know, hugely self-judgmental, and it was, it was a horrible few days. But what came out of that was something quite remarkable, and it was one of the great lessons for me. Finally, when I got over the emotional disturbance, I realized how beneficial it was to realize that my mind actually could do that. Because by becoming aware that it could do it, I actually, it opened up the possibility of seeing when it was doing it. As long as I was living in the illusion, in the, oh, I'd never do that. We live in the delusion of not seeing these unwholesome, unskillful patterns. So it's tremendously freeing. Do you see the power? And I've come to appreciate the joy, the delight of seeing my defilements. <laughs> Defilement is the Buddhist word for, you know, like the unwholesome mind states. Because at this point, I'd rather see it than not see it. You know, and so there's that moment of just, oh, look at that. Greed. <laughs> look at that. You know, jealousy, pride, whatever it may be. And there's a, there's a freedom in that. A 
Okay, so the first part in working the challenge, the first challenge is being willing, being courageous enough to actually open, to illuminate the shadow side. You know, what's there? What is it that we don't like to see about ourselves? The second challenge, and this is something that's very sticky, even when we do see the unwholesome mind states or unwholesome emotions, very often we get caught in justifying them to ourselves. And this, this pattern is very dangerous because we see it being played out now in the world. You know, we can get lost in hatred or anger and then just, well, I should feel this because look at what they did to me. You know, all of our emotions are conditioned responses from our family and our education and our background. And hard as it is to believe, are the emotions we feel in different situations are not necessarily the reflections of ultimate truth. <laughs> but we often think they are. Not only do we justify the emotions, often have you noticed in your life when we're lost in some unwholesome negative emotion, not only do we justify it, but we get self-righteous about feeling it. Well, I should feel this. <coughs> this self-righteousness is the shadow side of commitment. You know, we often confuse this self-righteousness about how we feel with commitment to some course of action. But they're two very different things. Now, when you think of the great exemplars of compassion and social justice, you know, like Martin Luther King Jr. or Gandhi or Nelson Mandela or any one of a number of people, there was never the sense of self-righteousness. And that, the lack of that didn't diminish the passionate dedication to the work they were doing. So we need to separate these two out. Now, it's not a question of whether these unwholesome feelings will arise, the fear, the anger, the ill will, even hatred at times. They will arise. They will arise for almost all of us. The challenge is whether we can see them and whether we can hold them, whether we can be aware of them with mindfulness so that they arise, we feel them, we see them, and we let them go. So in the one dharma of Western Buddhism, the method is mindfulness, the motivation is compassion, and the essence is wisdom, is liberating wisdom. Now, as we practice paying attention to the breath, to the body, to sounds, to our thoughts, to emotions, we begin to learn some things. We begin to learn that all of our experience is just part of a passing show. It's like water over a waterfall. Think of the best experience you've had in your life. Just the best one, blissful. 
happy. Where is it now? Now you're probably hot and restless. And Think of the worst experience you had in your life. You know, a really difficult time. Where is that now? But we get so caught up you know, in, the, in the story that we forget. We don't, we don't see the fact that it's all part of this current, this flow, this change. And the more we see that, the more we can let go. One, one great teacher said, if you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. Your struggle with the world will have come to an end. So this is the wisdom of non-clinging, of non-grasping. And this is where all the Buddhist traditions come together. This is the one dharma you know, of all the Buddhist traditions. There's not a single school in Buddhism that says cling. <laughs> but this clinging is so strong within us We like to cling. There's one phenomenon. I call it catalog consciousness. Have you ever noticed opening a catalog and something you might not even be interested in, but you open a catalog and get captured, and you keep turning the pages, waiting for something to want? <laughs> It's quite amazing. <laughs> and so the liberating wisdom of one dharma is understanding that non-clinging not only is the path to freedom, it is the expression of the awakened mind. Do you know that sense of relief when you finally put the catalog down? <laughs> it is. I mean, it really, it's like, oh. It's like we're out of the grip of the grasping mind. That's a taste. That, that you, could, you could think of that as the foretaste of nirvana. <laughs> so I'll just close with, with a few lines of uh, T.S. Eliot, who, who just expressed the beauty of this wisdom. He said, in describing it, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything, and all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. So this is our practice. This is really the one dharma. It's the methods of mindfulness, so that we're here in the moment. It's the motivation of compassion, realizing that really our fundamental aspiration for the world and for ourselves is peace. It's the methods of mindfulness, it's the motivation of compassion, and it's the wisdom of non-clinging. Thank you.
if you have any questions or comments, I'd be glad to try to respond. This was kind of a wide-ranging talk. Some years ago, I was uh, giving some lectures at the Harvard Divinity School, and somebody came up to me and asked me about the place of prayer in Buddhism. And at that time, I really had very little experience of prayer, didn't really do it, didn't think much of it. And in, at least in the Theravada countries of Burma and Thailand and Sri Lanka, what would be called prayer is really that there is chanting, and it's the recitation of the teachings. So that, that's kind of different than our notion of prayer. So that was my response then, about 1992. Over these last years, as I've studied more with some Tibetan teachers, as well as my Burmese teachers, in Tibetan practice, prayer plays a huge role. You know, and there's this great, uh, wonderful pantheon of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and you know, there's a lot of guru devotion, where you, where you pray to your teacher. And so, as I was studying with these teachers, I started doing some of these prayers, and I found that they were tremendously enriching. So, at the beginning, when I when I'm sitting now on retreat, I start my day. I, I, kind of created my own little one dharma ritual of prayer, you know, and I start with taking refuge, and then I do a little Tibetan purification mantra, and then I think of all of my teachers, and each one with their unique quality and what they gave to me, all the way up to the Buddha, you know, I kind of end with the Buddha. And it's like I'm tuning in to each of their energy. And basically, the prayer is it's like saying, grant your blessings for my highest aspiration. You know, we, each, we each would phrase it differently. And it feels like it connects. It's a connection to just energies much bigger than our small self. And most interestingly, so this is all on the relative level you know, of me here and great beings there and grant your blessings. But what it comes down to in the end, and this is where it becomes really enlightening, is to see that who I'm praying to and the nature of my own mind is the same. So I think that's how devotion opens to wisdom and becomes a vehicle for wisdom. You now, Mother Teresa, there's a great story about Mother Teresa in prayer. Somebody asked her what she does when she prays to God, to God, and she says, I just listen. And then the interviewer asked her, well, what does God say to you? 
And she replied, and this is using her language, he just listens. <laughs> and if you don't understand this, I can't explain it. And it was just that the image really captured me of just listening, listening to listening. And just the openness, the openness of emptiness, or the emptiness of awareness, or that's the space that we come to. The question was, can you get attached to the idea of being free of attachment? Well, there is one discourse the Buddha gave in the, in the Pali teachings. The name of the discourse is One Fortunate Attachment. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think that there is a recognition on the relative level of using the motivation for liberation as a vehicle for actually applying the effort. Now, one of the problems, and this, this again comes down to a careful discrimination of language, which we talked a little bit about last night. The word desire in English has many meanings. And so when we say the Buddha's teaching to be free of desire, it's confusing. Because some desire is the desire of greed. It's just that grasping mind. Some desire is the desire of motivation, motivation to do something. Now we can have a motivation to do something, and the energy of it is compassion. It's not grasping. But in English, we would say, I have a desire to do that. And so it's just a question of really understanding carefully, is it grasping in the heart, or is it wisdom? even though you might use the same word, desire. Did you hear that in the back? Uh, the question was, when I'm telling the story about fear, and when I came to that place of, if this is here for the rest of my life, it's okay, how was I able to do that? I think it was an unconscious pragmatism. <laughs> because the not doing it wasn't working. You know, because I had been trying. I had been trying to be mindful and fear, fear, fear. So I was making this effort, but I was staying locked in it. And, you know, and this is the great beauty of the meditative journey. And, in the sense that wisdom is intuitive. That is, you, you just do it, you do it, you do it, you do it, and then all of a sudden, something happens, and it's not planned. And so I was just practicing, practicing, and then it wasn't working, and then the mind released that aversion to the fear. 
which is what it was. And I was wanting to get rid of it in that moment. If this is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. It came spontaneously out of the practice. And what was amazing in that moment, all of that fear that I had been so locked into, it was, it was like a magic moment. It all washed through. You know, and just felt completely open. And it doesn't mean that fear has not come up again since, but my relationship to it now is very different. I'm not afraid of the fear. Okay. Yeah. Good. The question was, what does the word dharma mean? Uh, I was a little concerned about this in titling the book One Dharma. But then I thought, there can be a TV show, Dharma and Greg. <laughs> maybe, it'll, maybe it'll fly. <laughs> but Dharma is a Sanskrit word. And it has, it's, a very, it's a very big word. It has a lot of meanings. It means the truth. It means the law of things, natural law, you could say. It could be translated as the Tao, you know, the way. More specifically, it's used to mean the teachings of the Buddha. And so when, when people say Buddha Dharma, it refers to the teachings. It also means each element of experience. Sensations, thoughts, emotions are all dharmas, so elements. So it means all of those things. I'm on the lawyer's side. Uh, and I could get to all of the loving kindness of people who have injured me. And when I get to the point of loving kindness to people who have injured others or committed some sort of detail to injure their Would it be possible for you not to express it to yourself in terms of wishing kindness? And I think that's, I think many people can relate to what you're saying. Could you express it or express the wish, may you be free 
in the words you use, may you be free of evil. That's the wish. You know, it's not hard to come to that place when we frame it appropriately. But very often we hear some words like loving kindness or loving wishes. And if we don't delve a little bit deeper, we come to that problem. I could never do that. But that's because of a misunderstanding or a very uh, a limiting view of what wishing kindness is. Because really the wish, and it's, again, this is just reiterating, what is our most fundamental wish for the world? May there be peace in the world. And so it is possible, I think, for us to wish, yes, may you be free of evil, may you be free of hatred. And that would be a powerful practice to do, very powerful. And this particular, you know, I was thinking of, I had another whole talk planned. And, and it was really more about one dharma and the different Buddhist traditions coming together. But particularly, I thought, in coming to New York, I just felt that there are some important issues, particularly here. They're important for everybody, of course. But it just felt like this is a very important thing to begin to unpack so that we don't stay locked into as I said, perhaps instinctual emotional reactions when there's a possibility of understanding things in a more fundamental way. Yeah. And it's an exploration. Yes, yes. And I'm thinking, you know, myself, I'm having to do it. It's part of the campaign, you know, that they don't know what's going on because it's not, it was never like that at the end of the Then I was thinking about it. That wasn't just a company in any way, part of uh, helping that kind of thing. Yes. 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 Yeah. I mean, I, th I think that in situations that are so charged, you know, and this must be happening in the Middle East now hugely as well. And it really points also, I think, to this is maybe getting outside of my purview. But it just feels so important to me, the need for wise leadership. Because we just see how unwise leadership just creates so much suffering in the world. And where does wise leadership come from? It comes from people understanding their own minds. You know? So that's why when people think you go off to a meditation retreat 
oh, you're escaping from the world. That, that is not what it's about at all. It's really about seeing the world in ourselves, you know, and coming to that place of wisdom. And out of that pool of wisdom, hopefully wise leadership will emerge. But we have to do the work. And that's really what this is about. Meditation is not a hobby. You know, it's not. It's, it's much more vital. Than I think in these days, it's vital to the survival of the planet. We need to understand the nature of the mind and the forces that create suffering and the forces that can bring about peace. And what you expressed is beautiful. We need to be able to let go of the hatred or else that's what we're giving to the world. And in different situations, it may be difficult. It's not always easy. But there is a way. Thank you. question was if I could talk about how people are changed or transformed through meditation practice. Uh, there are many, so uh, I'll just... <coughs> Basically, we first see and then learn how not to be lost in patterns that cause suffering. That's the biggest transformation. So I'll just give you an example of that. Uh, I mean, one time on retreat, and this, this is a common, I think, for many people who, who do meditation, I was just sitting in the cafeteria, the dining room of our center, And I was pretending to be mindful, but I was really watching everybody. <laughs> and not only watching everybody, having a judging thought about everybody. <laughs> you know, and it, just the most ridiculous things. I didn't like what they wore, or they took too much food, or they took too little food, or whatever. So I'm just sitting there and watching my mind. And at a certain point, I just started to laugh. I started to laugh at my own mind because it was so completely ridiculous. And so I evolved two techniques for working with the judging mind. One is I started counting them. So judging one, judging two, judging 10,000. And what I did is exactly what you just did. One just starts to get amused by the mind. And the other technique I used was to every judgment that came up, I tacked on the thought, the sky is blue. Because if the thought, the sky is blue, comes into my mind, I don't get, I don't get carried away by it. I, it's, just a, it's just a neutral thought. Well, the judging thought, in essence, is no different. It's just a thought. It's just words in the mind. If we don't buy into it, if we don't believe it, and most importantly, if we don't judge ourselves for having it, That person's wearing ugly clothes. The sky is blue. 
So that's just an example of unhooking from a pattern. And it's so freeing. We do not have to be enslaved by the patterns of our thoughts. That's, that's tremendously freeing. The question was about seeing mindfulness, you know, moving into the mainstream in many ways, but not necessarily the other component of compassion and wisdom and non-clinging. I think it's true that the others are lagging behind. (laughs) But I also think that they will get pulled along because if you watch your mind long enough, if you really are practicing, and and I'm not talking about dabbling in a little bit, but, but you actually undertake it as a practice, you can't help but learn things about your mind. One of the first things my teacher said to me in India, and it's really what captured me, when I, I, I had done almost no meditation, so I was going there really as a novice. And he said, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. And that was it. There was nothing to join, no big belief system. And that was that pragmatic approach. And really, it's simply out of observing it that we begin to tune into how suffering is created. Now we begin to we begin to see it, and through the mindfulness, begin to see the possibility of letting go of the suffering. Through the being in the moment, where does compassion come from? Compassion comes from a willingness to come close to suffering. That that's where compassion is born. Now, it's pretty interesting to watch our responses when we come close to suffering. Now, I'll just share one story. A lot of these stories are, are in the book. I had one friend who was uh, having this, some surgery, and she had, uh, the doctor came in and was trying to uh, give her an IV, you know, and sticking the needle in. And you know how it is when you can't find the vein. And I mean, it's really very distressing. And this friend was very uncomfortable and getting a little faint. And the doctor just looked at her and said, what's the matter? It doesn't hurt. <laughs> you know, and it was just a striking example of what we all do in different situations where 
for whatever reason, we just close off to the suffering that's there. When we close off to the suffering that's there, we close, we cap that wellspring of compassion. What mindfulness does, mindfulness is the training in opening to suffering, in part. You know, so we open to the pain in the body, and we open to the painful feelings and emotions. So that becomes the gateway then over time to compassion. So I'm optimistic, even though I think, as you say, it still has a way to go. But I think that's the way to it. The comment, the comment was just kind of reiterating that, that thought that without the teachings of compassion and non-attachment, the mind may get very honed, but not actually take the next step. Clearly, the more the breadth of the teachings are offered, the more chance there is for it to happen. I very much appreciate your talk tonight and last night. And I think it helped me understand a little bit more about me. And I like your, your concrete explanations and your reframing. And so I think you've left me with a very good beginning tool. And I thank you. The, the second part is that three of us were just talking before you started tonight. And each one was uh, mentioning about our having a mother who has Alzheimer's. So here are three people in just a small area. And what I'm wondering is, in the practice, in the Dharma, is there room for social action, like, let's say, the three of us with parents? So where is it? What's done on a, on a larger level rather than an individualistic? The question, as I understood it, is where in the place of this practice and Dharma understanding is the place really for social action, social engagement? Is that uh, not only the place, but the, the actual implementation. Okay. I think the root of that implementation and engagement is something that uh, the Vietnamese Zen master and peace activist and poet Thich Nhat Hanh said about compassion, which, I mean, he's so good, and he just, he just captured it. He said, compassion is a verb. So that's the starting place. Because often we think of compassion as being a feeling, which it is, but then we don't activate it in some way. That it's just something that we may feel compassion for the suffering, but Thich Nhat Hanh is highlighting the fact that compassion is a verb. It implies response. So then the question is, at what level response? You know, whether it's the response on a one-to-one -one basis or in a more collective. I would be careful about making a hierarchy of social action that some levels or some kinds of social action somehow are higher or better than others. 
what we do, the actions we take in terms of compassionate response will be very individual, you know, and according to our interests, our capabilities, our propensities. And so for some people, it may just play out in their one-to-one relationships. Other people, that compassionate action, they may have the energy and the understanding of how to do it in terms of playing out collectively. The danger, which I've seen, is that people start judging the level of other people's compassion and what they're doing. And sort of activists think that meditators you know, just wasting their time, and why aren't they more out in the world? And meditators thinking, oh, the activists, they really ought to sit down and just watch their minds a little bit. That goes no place. We have to take a very big picture. You know, if we looked at the Buddha in his previous lives, and maybe in one whole life he was a hermit in a cave, and we just looked at that one little slice of his unfolding, we think, boy, that guy's not doing anything for anybody. But if we could see that as part of a much bigger unfolding, then we see, yeah, that life in the cave ended up serving countless beings. And so I think the only assessment that we can make is the motivation. Is the motivation for what we do a compassionate one? And then we each find our own way in it. Um, So I don't know if that that all addresses what you were asking. Well, it, it does, but let's say taking it a step further in terms of the three of us with, with, with elderly people, let's say, um, is there some sort of a movement? Is there more than just the individual compassionate approach? You know, these days it's really easy. Type in on the web, you'll get lots of, I mean, the, I'm saying this not facetiously. I mean, I think there's lots of opportunities, you know, and lots of organizations and lots of groups of people. I'm always amazed. You can type in anything. <laughs> and you get, you know, this list of associations that are doing it. Uh, and it is great. I mean, having a nucleus of three, already you have a nucleus of action. And I think. Red hat. <laughs> that action precedes the thought as well? Action now will produce the thought. Question was if thought precedes actions, isn't it also true that thoughts come out of actions? Ah, I think it is. I think. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to get too uh, minute in this. But action always is initiated by some impulse in the mind. Without some impulse in the mind, a corpse doesn't do anything because there's no mind there. 
Now, so it's the mind which is initiating, but then the action itself will produce its own train of thoughts, which will produce more, more actions. So I think that's right. talk about that in the book. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying a word. <laughs> it's actually a very interesting question in a bigger, it has, it has broader implications because it actually um, highlights the difference in two major schools of Buddhism, just that issue. In one school, emphasis is given to really freeing oneself first, and then letting the service come out of that. So there's a lot of attention to getting liberated, and then serving. That's more in the Theravada school. In the more the Mahayana schools, more emphasis is given to actually activating the compassion for others, and that itself is the path of liberation, putting others before oneself. Now, over the last 2,500 years, each, each school has gotten quite sectarian in their attachments to their viewpoint from the perspective of one dharma, and, and this, was, this was really part of my own exploration, they're not two different things. There's tremendous value in being compassionate and freeing oneself first. And we hear that every time we get on an airplane where it says, you know, in case of loss of cabin pressure, the, the oxygen mask will come down. Please put your own on first and then assist those around you. It's a very sane principle because if we don't take care of ourselves, then the help we are able to give to others is limited. If we put on our own oxygen mask, then we're able to help everyone around us. So that's one school. The other school, and it's very much exemplified by the Dalai Lama, there's, you know, one of the great works of Mahayana Buddhism is by Shantideva called the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, and it's this magnificent work on giving yourself completely over to the service of others, where you make others more important than yourself. And that's tremendously uplifting and, and inspiring. 
There's a way of holding them together so that we're not making them two different things. If it's realizing that we need to put our own oxygen mask on first, but we do that with the motivation that it is for the, we're doing that for the benefit of others. So that, that widens our path, it broadens the scope. And as we're doing the other approach, putting others before ourselves, if we see that as being a practice of our own liberation, it doesn't become codependence. And so there's a unity there when we don't get when we don't get caught in sectarian beliefs. That's an important question, and again, I, I address it in the book. In terms of bringing together different practices from different traditions, I think it's very important to get well established in one before trying to attempt this. Otherwise, it can get very confusing. You know? And so some time where one really feels some depth of understanding in one particular method or way, whichever one, you know, that suits you. And then from that place of understanding, then it's like opening this treasure house of Dharma. You know, because we have a reference point of understanding within ourselves. So then it's amazing. You know, and you can just take from many traditions exercises in compassion and many. You know, there's just, there's just this great abundance which is there for us to use. But it has to be built on a foundation. And one last question, and then, yeah. I will buy the book, but, uh, <laughs> 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 concepts like reincarnation and karma fall into one dharma? I mean, it seems to me that Buddhism is a very pragmatic religion. It's about mindfulness and following your mind. It seems like reincarnation and karma are faith-based kinds of ideas. So if one dharma is pragmatic, as you say, Americanism is pragmatic, where do those concepts fall into one dharma? So the question about rebirth and karma and what's the pragmatic test of those? When I first started my practice, you know, I, I went. I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand, and I first got introduced, and then I came back to the States, realized I needed a teacher, went back. To Asia, I went to India, and that's where I met my first teacher. When I went back, I had studied philosophy in school. I had no notion or belief at all in rebirth. I mean, that was a completely foreign concept to me. But slowly over the years, my opening to it, it happened in, it happened in stages, and I'll just share my process with you. And, the first process was, as I began practicing and saw that so many of the Buddhist teachings seemed to be borne out in my experience, I began to think, well, he was right about this much that I, that I could actually see. 
it's just possible he's right about the other things that are, that are mentioned. So that was the first beginning of a willingness to consider what I think Coleridge called the willing suspension of disbelief, which is an important letting go, because we can get quite attached to our disbeliefs. Then I met teachers who actually had the power to remember not only yeah, their past lives, could see other past lives. And these, this, especially this woman I talked about last night, Deepama. And she was so extraordinary. And I just had no reason to disbelieve her when she said she saw this. So that was another step. The final step, or not final, but the next step, was a growing understanding of the nature of awareness, the nature of consciousness. Because as the meditation deepened, and I began to see experientially, or experience directly, the non-material nature of consciousness, that was very freeing, because then it didn't tie consciousness to physical form. And so then the possibility of rebirth, it just a whole new dimension began to open up. It's still not something I could say, you know, I know definitively. But th these were the steps in my coming to, to hold it in a different way. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.